The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. This episode is coming to you on December 25th, observed by many as Christmas Day. So you can consider this the Museum of Flight holiday special. And we do have a very special guest today. In late December 2018, we're also celebrating an important aerospace event, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 8 mission. So I sat down with NASA's chief historian, Dr. Bill Berry, to discuss the legacy of Apollo 8, and also talk about how the pursuit of space can be a unifier for people who otherwise feel divided. The 60s are, are an interesting time because, of course, everybody, particularly the Soviet Union and the United States, are, are sort of duking it out for advantages in space, but they're also afraid that the other guy's going to get you know, an advantage on so that they're there were some things that we could agree on, uh, one of which was that we shouldn't be putting weapons in space to drop on each other. The Soviets kind of didn't really abide by that necessarily. <laughs> uh, they had a secret program kind to of put nuclear weapons. It, actually, delivering a nuclear weapon from orbit is actually not really very useful yes. uh, because you have to like be in the right spot at the right time. It's much easier to just launch a missile and, and hit a spot. But anyway, it was one of those technologies that, that appeared at first to be a really big advantage, and it turned out not to be. Everybody could agree that 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 was probably not uh, yeah. where they wanted to go. So um, agreeing that uh, you shouldn't, you know, countries shouldn't claim the moon and other bodies in space for as territory like they used to on Earth. You know, there's a treaty over Antarctica these days, for example, that mm-hmm. you know, we've agreed that no, there are no territorial claims, but there are plenty of countries who still have territorial claims in, in Antarctica. We don't have that issue in space, at least not yet. I don't remember if it was for a podcast episode or for an article I wrote here, but talked a little about Antarctica's influence on space law and all that. Yeah, of course, the Antarctic Treaty was being developed around, you know, a little bit before that, I think. So there's there's a natural flow on, this is an area we're going to declare a scientific zone. Mm-hmm. And that sort of logic was applied to space. Um, so a lot of treaties get given. So the Outer Space Treaty on returning astronauts, you know, for example, if an astronaut spacecraft comes back unscheduled and lands someplace other than where they planned, like in the Soviet Union or Mm-hmm. You know, cosmonauts land in the United States. We we agreed that we'd return them to their home countries, and you know, which of course was not not a given at the time. That's fair. Yeah, yeah so. chuckle about it now, but yeah, it's, <laughs> I I was born far removed from that time, so it it seems kind of silly, and and all the whole Soviet U.S. thing seems kind of silly from the perspective of you know here we are you know thirty years after the end of the Cold War, but uh, it was really serious stuff. I mean, it was you know, space competition between those the the two systems was. A really big thing, one that we're willing to spend $25 billion on in the mm-hmm. 1960s to send people to the moon because we thought it was important to prove that the U.S. You know, Western capitalist model um, was at least as effective as the Soviet system, Yeah, uh, which was up for debate at the time. And that, that's one thing that I find inspiring about the modern space program is that you know, on the larger political scene, Russia and the U.S. are, are confronting each other. At the same time, though, our scientists and our space programs, I mean, when a U.S. astronaut goes up, they're going in a Russian capsule to a space station designed by Russians and Americans and Japanese and Canadians and um, European, I mean, all over the world. So it's, it's, it's inspirational to me in that 
there's all this stuff going on in the world, but at the same time, we've managed to pull together over this. Yeah, well, you know, space is really hard, and um, it's expensive because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and you know, no one country wants to spend you know a gazillion dollars or, or whatever their currency is uh, to do things in space. So this sort of limited, you know, uh, stomach for for spending on space. In the United States, we spend you know less than half of one percent of the federal budget on on NASA. That's still about twenty billion dollars a year. That's a, that's you know that's not chump change, uh, but um, but in the large scheme of things, it's a pretty small investment. Yeah. And, and most other countries spend l- you know less than we do in terms of percentages on on their space program. So um, it makes sense to get together. And engineers and scientists who work together, they speak the same language, math, right, largely. <laughs> uh, and so that's an international language. It's easy for them to get. And once once you get them together and they start talking about problems. The, the issues over, you know, what their government says about one thing or the other or, or you know, things. You know, those things, uh, for engineers and scientists, those things generally are sort of secondary considerations, I think, sometimes. And, and it's really easy for them to kind of get engaged in, in the process and, and get excited about a problem that they need to solve together. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the working level relationships between the United States and our partners on the space station program, you know, from wherever they are on planet Earth are... are generally really positive and you know we work to make make sure that's that's true you know it's, it's not it's not always easy to work those things out but it is a focus of things and and one that i think sort of comes naturally to the scientists and engineers and you've had a chance to experience that firsthand before your work as the nasa chief historian you were representing nasa in europe Talk about great jobs at NASA getting to be the chief historian, <laughs> and just before that, I get to be the, the NASA Europe rep, which is uh, yeah. which is great. You, you, I was assigned to the embassy in Paris, and uh, <laughs> and I traveled all over Europe talking to our partners in Europe about various things. Uh, it really, it was a, the, that job's sort of a glorified bureaucrat job because <laughs> we have folks in Washington who basically do the same thing, except they have to do it in Washington D.C. Uh, I get to do it in Europe. I would much is, rather do it in Paris lot, than which in is a lot more fun. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and before that, I'd spent about six years working uh, on our relations with Russia in that in our office in Washington, D.C. So so I get to see lots of that stuff. And it's one of those things that's really gratifying to see how much space inspires people to do their best and to be creative and, and effective and to work together in, in a positive way. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those activities that I, I think it's hard to imagine why anyone would object to, to spending a few tax dollars on. Now, this episode will release on December 25th. Many celebrate that as Christmas Day, Mm -hmm. but in 1968, people around the world also celebrated the Apollo 8 mission, which took place over Christmas of that year. So as people listen to this, it'll be the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 8 mission. What are some reflections on that? Maybe some lesser known stories or or things from the Apollo 8 mission? Well, Apollo 8 was an amazing, amazing mission, and it kind of came about by accident. The lunar module wasn't ready yet. It was they were having problems getting the weight down and, and the performance of the vehicle ready. And so NASA is in this position in 1968, and we're trying to get to the moon by the end of the decade. Uh, the clock is running. We just got over the fire. Apollo 7 is about to launch in October of, of 1968, and NASA is looking at, at the alternatives on you know, how we're going to fly this sequence of flights because we, you know, we have to check out the lunar module. We have to check out the operations of, of these vehicles in orbit around the moon, and, and you know, how do we make that operationally from the ground, how we make that work. Lots of issues, and you want to do a, sort of a dress rehearsal. So there's this, this whole sequence of missions that have to be flown, and they really can't afford the, the wait for the lunar module to be ready. Saturn V's ready to go. We had two test flights on that. The first one went 
really well. Second one didn't go quite so well. You know, there was this um, what they call pogo, this the oscillation vertically in the rocket. But they figured out how that happened, and engineers were really convinced they had that sorted out. So you get the the big rocket ready to go. You get the command and service module ready to go. No lunar module. What are we going to do? Um, and so they basically create this mission that hadn't really been planned. We'll just send a crew to orbit the moon, and that way we can test out. You know, how, can we get to the moon? Can we fly astronauts on a Saturn V um, safely? How do we operate around the moon? And, you know, does the, the system work? And we can kind of reconnoiter the place as well a little bit. So first crew to ever launch on a Saturn V, you know, Borman, Lovell, and Anders, uh, and they they head out to the moon. Oh, and oh, by the way, unbeknownst to most people, but NASA is aware of this, and so the U.S. intelligence agencies at the time, the Soviets had been testing the system to send couple of cosmonauts around the moon uh, and they had a whole series of test flights they flew five test flights in 1968 we didn't know at the time but each of those flights failed in different ways hmm. so the soviets weren't weren't ever quite ready to go but it looked like they might actually fly a mission in december they had a launch window in december and so you know we're kind of nervous about whether they're going to launch and get to the moon first and beat us to the moon so that's that was another motivation for apollo 8 is to is to send you know crew around the moon and, and kind of preempt the soviets for a change and so the crew launches, and you know, it's a highly successful mission. The systems work really well, and uh, it just so happens that they get to lunar orbit on Christmas Eve, and the crew sends back this message from lunar orbit on Christmas Eve, where you know they, they do some readings from the Bible, um, you know, from Genesis, the first you know few words of Genesis, um, and this really sort of heartfelt ending. If you if you listen to the audio of it, you know Frank Borman when he signs off, um, it just you could you could almost feel the loneliness in his voice. Uh, you know, he's up there with two other guys, but they are far from home uh, on Christmas Eve. And I think it had a really big impact, particularly because, uh, you know, 1968, it was in a, a really bad year for the United States. You know, multiple political assassinations, you know, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. And, uh, you know, the war in Vietnam's going badly and there are protests. There's election turmoil over um, over things. So 1968 is kind of a bad and, and then have to have a success like this happen, such a huge success that it kind of riveted people's attention and, and to have it, you know, happen so dramatically, you know, over the, the holiday season was, was I think, pretty amazing. And to me, one of the big, the biggest things is that Bill Anders, as he's taking pictures of the surface of the moon, looks out the window and sees the earth rising over the lunar surface. And the whole crew gets excited to take some pictures there, the, the famous earth rise picture. And that picture uh, alone really sort of captured something about earth and, and really, I think signifies one of the things that we learned from Apollo that we really weren't expecting to learn, our place in the universe. Is that picture, there's the barren, lifeless terrain of the moon, this black sky, nothing out there. There's this one little blue and white you know, dot out there. That's our planet. That perspective you get from sometimes looking at things in a different way. We actually had a picture like that from a robotic probe. It was in black and white a couple of years earlier in 1966. Um, so we'd seen Earth rise-like pictures before, but but to have it taken by humans, have it come back in color. And of course, back in those days, it wasn't digital. So we had to wait till the crew landed. They developed the film and then they print the picture and they go, oh my God, look at this picture. Yeah. Um, and it became a cultural thing that that has effects that are still rippling through now where people's perspective on on Earth and humanity and uh and you know, our, our shared you know, futures together and how fragile it all is. I think that that's had a huge impact on things. So Apollo 8, an amazing mission in so many ways. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, 
and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of The Flight Deck. If you want to learn more about Apollo 8, check out the museum's Apollo exhibit. But if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, you better move quick, because on January 2nd, 2019, we're closing our exhibit to install Destination Moon in its place. And be sure to visit the museum in 2019 for Destination Moon, the Apollo 11 mission a state-of-the-art traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian Institution, featuring the iconic Apollo 11 Command Module Columbia and over 20 other one-of-a-kind artifacts, many flown on the historic mission. Destination Moon shows why we went to the moon, how we got there, and the impact the moon landing had on the world. I am personally so very excited for this. It's going to be fantastic. If you like what you heard in the podcast, please subscribe to us and feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can find more information about the podcast on our website, museumofflight.org slash podcast. You can email the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, to everyone out there on that good earth saying we'll see you out there, folks. Folks.